Hi, I'm Josh. I'm a first year studying medical sciences. Um, and I'll be reading the Bible today because we as Christians believe the Bible is God's word to us. And so we want to hear and understand what he has to say. So I'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 to 25. Once everyone's ready. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Thanks, Josh. It's great to be with you. My name's Tim. And uh, we're going to look at that little passage uh, from the Bible, that excerpt uh, that Josh read to us. And on the other side of it, you'll find an outline of where we're going. Why doesn't God prove himself? It's a good question, isn't it? And I think it's a fair question. If there is a God and God wants us to know him and believe in him, then surely God would give us some clear proof of his reality and his existence. And when people say, why doesn't God prove himself? I think most people have one of two things in mind. Uh, Firstly, they have in mind God doing some sort of spectacular demonstration that he really does exist. Some sort of miracle, show himself. Or maybe do something that's unmistakable, miraculous and supernatural. So if we're standing here today and suddenly this lectern levitates into the air, no strings, I'm step back, it's just doing it all by itself and it does a couple of somersaults and comes back down, you might think, maybe that's God. That's inexplicable. It's, it, it, we could video it and, and go back and, and look at it. Something that, well, I'm an engineer, I like tangible things, I'm sceptical about UFOs, I, I want evidence. Would God give us some evidence we could put under the microscope? Surely that's not hard for an all-powerful God, don't you reckon? Or secondly, some people are thinking about a logical proof. God proved himself with some sort of logically compelling argument that proves he exists. A watertight and knockdown syllogism that at the end you can write QED, whatever that stands for. Mathematical theorems like that. Now, there are lots of philosophical arguments about the existence of God. Some of you may be aware of Aquinas's five proofs, he called them. The cosmological, the teleological, the argument from design. And they're really interesting, and, but I'm not sure they're compelling, are they? It seems like philosophers just year by year continue to debate them and no one seems to be able to work out whether they really work or, or don't work. But surely if God is an all-wise, all-knowing God, he could come up with a logically compelling argument. But it appears as if God, if a God exists, hasn't done either. The knockdown miracle, the knockdown argument. He hasn't done it for me. 
I don't know whether he's done it for you. Well, why not? It's puzzling, isn't it? Maybe no such God exists. Well, this excerpt from a letter written in about 53 AD, so about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, from a guy called Paul, who was an early Christian leader, to some Christians in a Greek city called Corinth, just down the road from Athens. But before we explore the answer that this passage gives, I want to clear up one dead end. Some people suggest that God doesn't prove himself because to do so would be to destroy faith. In their minds, religion is about faith and faith is about believing things where there's no evidence, no proof, no facts, just blind, close your eyes, I've got faith. But actually, no religion that I'm aware of thinks of faith like that, especially not Christianity. Evidence and proof aren't the enemies of faith, they're the friends of faith. Just like evidence about the strength of chairs enables you to put faith in the chair you're sitting in at the moment. That's what faith is, trusting something that you believe. Why doesn't God prove himself? Well, the answer that this passage gives begins really in verse 21. Uh, This passage is broken up. Christians just do it so we can follow uh, and reference things. It's got little numbers there. Where you see the number 21, there's a sentence. It says this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. See what that's saying? It's saying that God has a deliberate strategy. He's made a deliberate decision to not allow us to know him through our wisdom. God shut the door on people discovering him by their own intellectual inquiry, by their own philosophy or by experiments. He explains it further in verse 22. He says, in his day, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. See, God doesn't pander to people's demands, demands for miracles, supernatural demonstrations of power that can be empirically verified. God won't pander to that demand, nor to the demand for wisdom, the clever, eloquent arguments, the the, the elegant proofs. In those days, that's what people demanded of any self-respecting religion. And today, it's the same, isn't it? They're exactly the same questions and demands people make today. But this passage says God refuses to pander to either demand. Now, if that's true, it's got some implications, doesn't it? It means the science faculty can't help you know God. God refuses to get into our test tubes. You can't do a double-blind experiment on an all-knowing God. It's impossible. And the school of philosophy can't help us much either because all they've got is human reasoning and God says he won't cooperate with that. It makes this whole God thing a bit tough to come at, doesn't it? But why? Why does God seek to put this strategy into effect, to not allow us to find him by our own efforts, by our own thinking and philosophy? Well, there's a negative and a positive. You see the negative in verse 19. It's written, I, that's God, will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent are frustrate. Anybody here think they're intelligent? Well, this is you. God is out to frustrate you. Verse 20, where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That is, what Paul is saying is that God has set out to dismantle human wisdom and cleverness and expose it as foolish. How come? It's a very strange thing to do, isn't it? Is it that God wants us to remain ignorant and in the dark? No, I don't think so. Is it that God feels threatened by the competition? 
Now, some of you, your IQ is getting a bit too clever and he wants to sort of keep you down a bit. He, he's feeling, his number one ranking is feeling threatened. No, it's, it's a very different issue for God. It's about human pride and arrogance. Something that's deeply embedded, that sense that I'm the most important person in the world. Or for you, you think you're the most important person in the world. Now, you may not believe me that that's deeply embedded, but let's try a couple of experiments. When you look at a group photo, if you're in it, who do you look for first? It's always you, isn't it? It's always me. I want to know what I look like. Am I smiling? Is my hair looking okay? Instead of other people. It's, it's, it's just natural. It's so deeply ingrained. It's, it's what we do. Or Have you ever had those discussions with a friend and it turned into a bit of an argument? And it didn't really get resolved, but afterwards, as you were sort of replaying it in your mind, you worked out what you should have said. I have never lost a rerun in my life. I always win every rerun. I work out the right thing I should have said. Of Of course I'm cleverer than everybody else. Of course I'm right. What arrogant nonsense. But it infects all of us, doesn't it? And throughout all of history, all of us want to supplant God at the centre of reality, at the centre of our lives, at the centre of the universe with ourselves. Pride is that driving force that's behind much of the cruel and callous and heartless and selfish behaviour we see all around us, that we hate in others, even as we perpetrate it ourselves. And there's more than a touch of arrogance in saying to God, well, God, I'll believe in you if you prove yourself to me. Of course, I'll set the test and I'll mark you. I'll see whether you come up to scratch. I'll set the standard. So imagine you go to your parents and say, Dad and Mum, I want to know whether you really love me. If you really love me, buy me a brand new BMW. How do you think your parents are going to respond? I presume at least they're going to say, that doesn't feel like a genuine inquiry, that feels like a test. You're just trying to get something out of me. You're demanding. And it's inappropriate, isn't it? To treat our parents like that is sort of arrogant. Well, the same thing with God. And what if God did pander to my demands? I asked for a miracle, asked for the lectern to, to do a couple of double takes, and God jumps, he does it. And tomorrow I'm feeling a little doubt again, and I say, well, God, you've got to do it for me again. And so he does it again. Well, that's sort of the wrong way to relate to God altogether, isn't it? I'm treating God as my servant. I'm calling the shots. I'm saying I'm at the centre and he's got to do what I want. And God says, I won't play that game. He's out to dismantle arrogant human demands like that, to subvert our pride. That's the negative side, but there's a positive side, to save. Come back with me to verse 21. Because something changes in the middle that's unexpected. Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Did you hear the change? Did you expect the second half to say, well, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to let people know him. But he's changed from know to save. See, God's agenda is not being known. God's agenda is to save us, to rescue us humans. See, God's goal is not to get people to believe in him, as if he's feeling a bit ignored and unappreciated, a bit miffed he didn't win the Gold Logie Award this year. And so to save himself from obscurity, to get us to believe in him and feel a bit better about himself, he 
gets us, does something for us, so we believe and we do him a favour by believing in him. No, that, that's not his agenda. His agenda is the opposite of that. He's doing us a huge favour, rescuing us from the hole we dug ourselves into. Again, what if God did pander to our demands? You know, I ask for a miracle and God gives him a miracle and you know, I walk out of this room stunned at what's happened and you go to the next lecture and somebody says, well, how was the lunch? You, say, you wouldn't believe what I saw today. Come and see it. Tomorrow we might get the same thing again. You come back and your friends will be with you. And What would they be coming for? To get saved? To be rescued? No, to see something spectacular. To have something to talk about in the next lecture. Something that's tickled their fancy. Now, God's agenda is to save us. There was a time some lawyers came to Jesus and they said to Jesus, show us a sign from heaven and then we'll believe in you. You know what Jesus did? He refused. Blank refused. He said, no sign will be given to people who come demanding signs. The irony is, just before that, immediately before people coming and asking him that, Jesus had just fed 4,000 people with seven bread rolls. They all walked away fully satisfied. Now, I don't know how that happened, but <laughs> they were there, but they experienced it. It was empirical. They knew. That is, it's not that there's no evidence. It's not that God has done nothing to show that he's true. The problem is when I start dictating to God when and where he's supposed to do it. See, some of the things Jesus did are absolutely mind-blowing. There was a time he met a man, middle-aged man, who was born blind and he cured him so he could see. Now some people will say that you know, progress in science will reduce the miraculousness of that, the, how inexplicable it is. But actually the progress of science shows us just how inexplicable, how unbelievable that is. Because we now know that if you're born blind, all the nerve connections that enable you to see aren't formed, both in your optic nerve and in your brain. For somebody born blind to be cured is absolutely incredible. It's beyond imagination how something could happen like that. In fact, the people at the time didn't believe it. They got the, the guy's parents in and said, is this really your son? Was he born blind? Have you been with him all the time? Do you know that he's never been able to see before this? Because they couldn't believe what had happened. Oh, God has done things to show us that he's real. Mind-blowing things. But I need to let God tell me where to find him, not tell him where he has to be found. So if God doesn't pander to our demands for proof, what is he up to? How does he create the right sort of relationship between us and him? Well, come with me to verse 22, 23. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. Paul says that the way he wants people to meet God, the place he wants people to meet God, is Christ crucified. Now, that may just be words to you, I'm not quite sure. Christ is just the Greek form of the word Messiah. And I suspect you've come across that word before. You know the idea of a Messiah. Now, when a political party is really on the skids, what do they do? They try and elect a new leader, hoping they'll be their Messiah. Lead them to victory, a sporting team. If they're at the bottom of the table, they need a Messiah, whether it's a new captain or a new coach or manager, whatever it is, they need a Messiah, someone who will save them from 
getting the wooden spoon. The Christ is not just any Messiah. It's God's Messiah, God's King who will conquer all. But he says Christ crucified. The crucified is the opposite end of the spectrum, executed as a despised criminal. Christ crucified is really an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? Any literature people here? It's a device where you put two words together that actually sort of contradict each other. Like negative growth. Or civil war. Or fun run. (laughs) (laughs) Or personal computer. Well, this one, this this might be before your time. Microsoft works. (laughs) Or headbutt. Yeah, you've got to figure out that one a little bit, don't you? Now, it may be paradoxical, but what Paul is saying is God has done something real and concrete, not to prove himself, but to rescue us. God sent his own son to die for us, to take the rap that I deserve for my pride and evil. God may not prove himself to your satisfaction, but he's clearly proved he's committed to your good, to saving you and me. Now, Paul admits that as a marketing strategy, Christ crucifies the pits. See that in verse 23? It's a stumbling block to Jews, a, a scandal to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. See, if, you, if you're into miracles, if you like power, then Jesus can't have been very powerful. Where's the power in getting yourself executed? That's weak and useless, isn't it? Nothing exciting and captivating about that. In 1853, I think it was, uh, a bit of graffiti was unearthed in Rome near Palatine Hill. And it's a bit hard to tell from that, isn't it? It's just something scratched in plaster from probably the second century AD. It's a bit hard to date exactly. Let let me sort of do a tracing of it. That's how it traces. Can you see there? there's a a man uh, on the left and he's looking up to, worshipping, this crucified sort of human figure with a donkey's head on it. And the inscription says in Greek, Alexamenos worships his God. Now, graffiti often makes fun of things. And this is making fun of Christians. See, to have a God who got himself crucified in ignominy and shame, naked, nailed up there to public ridicule, that's stupid, that's weak, that's crazy. And so people made fun of Christianity because... That's what it's like. See, having a cross on Christian buildings, I know it looks pretty, I know it's sort of become the accepted symbol of Christianity, but the equivalent, if you wanted to sort of update it, would be to have a gallows up on top of the building or an electric chair on that silver chain around your throat. Sort of bizarre. Who would do such a thing? Christ crucified. Who'd be attracted to that? And if you're into cleverness and wisdom, into philosophy, then the cross is foolishness. Jesus can't have been very clever to get himself crucified. And everyone knew he was innocent. Even a crap lawyer could have got him off it, but Jesus didn't. If you're into philosophical argument, if you're into the power of human rationalism, you won't be attracted by the crucifixion of Jesus. Some of you may be familiar with Richard Dawkins, one of the most famous scientists and atheists in the world at the moment. This is something he said in a an interview in 2006. He said, a supernatural intelligent designer, it does seem to me to be a worthy idea. Refutable, he doesn't believe it, 
but nevertheless grand and big enough to be worthy of respect. But I don't see Jesus coming down and dying on a cross as worthy of that grandeur. What does he think of the cross of Jesus? Jesus getting crucified? Well, not very interesting. Nothing spectacular, nothing grand about it. Really, I'd as soon forget about it. I did philosophy of religion at uni and we had endless debates about the existence of God. And week after week we'd we'd be talking and discussing and the lecturer would be trying to convince us of certain things. But interestingly, at the end of the semester, Jesus hadn't got a mention. His crucifixion was completely ignored, but wasn't even considered as relevant to the question. Because if we keep it that way, our philosophical debates, we keep control of the story, don't we? I get to decide what I'm impressed with, what arguments I like, especially my own, of course. And I reckon one of the reasons people dismiss Jesus and his crucifixion as irrelevant and dumb is because it's sort of a bit humbling. It's a bit insulting for us. Here's a little cartoon I saw once. You can see the humour in it, can't you? Blithely ignorant. It's okay, I can swim, get lost, I don't need you. So, I mean, if it happened to you, <laughs> you're out swimming down at Cottesloe or somewhere and suddenly a rescue arrived, I hope you'd have the humility to assume that they knew something that you didn't. Christ crucified, it says something about you and me, that we're in deep trouble, that he knows something I don't, that we need him to die for us. But as we move into that, we're no longer in the realm of intellectual debate, of philosophising. I mean, if this guy suddenly says, uh, starts debating with the person above him, uh, do you really exist? Is there really a helicopter there? You want to say, just shut up and get yourself rescued. It's very personal. God has, rescued, has acted to rescue me. Will I swallow my pride or not? Hey, Paul wants us to reevaluate Jesus' crucifixion. Although most dismiss it as weak and foolish, he thinks it's actually the opposite. It's both powerful and wise. And so you see that in verse 24. To the, those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. <clears throat> Jesus hanging on a cross, helpless and pathetic, is hardly projecting power, is it? Yet what happened there, Paul is saying, is more powerful than any power we've created. Because it has the power to save people. By his death, Jesus paid the penalty for our arrogant rejection of God as God. So guilty, shameful people can be forgiven and reconciled to our creator. And in the broad scheme of things, that matters more than anything else, doesn't it? Christ crucified takes people from condemned to accepted, from guilty to innocent, from enslaved to free, from hell to heaven, from death to life. Eternal destiny is reversed. Do you know anything as powerful as that? Nuclear bomb? All the money in the world? A miracle on demand? No. And he says it's the wisdom of God. It looks sort of dumb, but it's wiser than anything we've dreamt up. There are lots of ways in which it's wise. Let me just share a couple with you. The first is it, it creates the right sort of relationship with God. You see, what sort of relationship should a creature have with its creator? The maid with its maker. Willing, grateful dependence. And Christ crucified, when you start to understand it and embrace it, brings about willing, grateful dependence on God and his rescue of us. But demands for miracles, demands for clever proofs, leaves me at the centre calling the shots, sitting in judgment on God. 
And fantastically, it opens up this rescue to everybody. So if knowing God demanded, uh, depended on the very clever arguments, who would know God? Only the very clever. Only those who could follow the argument and make sense of it and say QED at the end. It would be very elitist, wouldn't it? I'd miss out. Most of you would miss out. It would just leave the clever feeling smug in their cleverness. But Christ crucified is actually clever because even the simplest child can get it. Christ died for me and come to God and be forgiven. It creates the right sort of relationship with God. Secondly, it gives value without pride. See, what makes you a somebody and not a nobody? We all want to be a somebody, don't we? And my guess is that we spend 90% of our waking energy trying to be a somebody. See, maybe it's your brains. You think that because of how clever you are, the sort of marks you can get at uni, you can be a somebody. So what do you do? You study hard. You work hard. Or you don't work so hard and you just tell people, I got good marks without working hard, which means you're clever. Others of it's our looks. And so we go to the gym and we put the makeup on because that's what will give, make us a somebody. Or maybe it's being good at sport or being able to tell great jokes. Well, let me tell you, they usually don't work. See, when I was at school... It wasn't hard to be a big fish in a small pond. Ducks at the school, well, took a bit of work, but not that much. But I got to uni, and suddenly I was a small fish in a big pond. And all that I tried to build up just got demolished. I was no longer anybody significant. But sometimes it does work. There are some people who are the best. And what happens to them? Well, inevitably, they get full of themselves, don't they? They look down their nose on others in their pride. They get ugly and competitive. But Jesus' death gives us value without pride. It humbles us. All of us need rescuing. And Jesus gave his life to rescue us. And in that, we have value. Jesus gave his life for you and for me. He thinks we're worth that much. To him, we're a somebody. It's brilliant. I know of nothing else in the world that can give you value without pride. And it fits us like a glove and it reconstructs everything to the way it ought to be. So why doesn't God prove himself? Well, we've seen two reasons. God refuses to pander to our demands to him to do it our way. You'd like God to do a personal miracle for you, would you? Well, there's times I would too. It's not that God can't do it. It's not that you're not allowed to ask for it. He sometimes does, actually. A friend of mine had never been to church in her life. And as a young mum, she went to church for the first time. When she went to the church service, one of the things they did was they read something from the Bible and there was a a Bible sitting beside her. She'd never opened one. And she just said, well, God, if you're real, let the Bible open to the right page. And she just closed her eyes and opened it and it opened to the right page for the Bible reading. She thought, nah, maybe the person before me had already opened it there. It sort of had a, a leaning towards it. So she closed it, opened it another 10 times and never opened back the same page. God sometimes does do things like that. But this passage is saying God normally doesn't. He doesn't pander to our demands. In fact, demanding that God does it is actually a symptom of the problem, our pride. Secondly, we've seen that God's agenda is not trying to sort of force us to believe in him, to give intellectual assent to his existence. So we walk away saying, well, that's really interesting. Now I know there is a God and go back to living life the way you were. Now, his agenda is to rescue us through the death of his son, Jesus. That's where he meets us. So God says, if you want to know me, 
Meet me at the cross of Jesus. If that's true, if if, if that's real, and I'm convinced it is, then there's a question for us. How will we, how will I respond, how will you respond to what God has done? Because if this is true, it implies that a revolution needs to happen. Some of you are familiar with Copernicus, aren't you? And his revolution. Published in 1543, a theory with evidence that the world was not the centre of our solar system, but the sun was, and the earth revolved around the sun. You might think that's just a nice scientific debate and theory, and it's nice to have it. But psychologically, that's a huge shift. Can you understand that? That is, if you thought the earth was at the centre, that makes us humans the centre of the universe, doesn't it? But to suddenly think we're not, and our world isn't, the sun is at the centre, changes everything. It changes how you think about yourself, not just how you think about cosmology. And this is saying that sort of revolution needs to happen for us. God needs to move to the centre. Me to to recognise that I revolve around him, not him around me. It's easy, I think, for us to use God's non-proving of himself as a convenient excuse. You you can say, if if God really wanted me to believe in him, he'd prove himself in some unmistakable way, but he hasn't, at least not to me personally. So until he does, I'm free just to carry on with life as I'm living it. My life is my life. I'll do as I please and feel justified in doing so. As if it's up to God, the ball's in his court. If that's you, can I urge you to stop, to reconsider your stance? Stop demanding that God dance to your tune. Stop ignoring what God has done already. Start looking humbly and seriously at the place God says he meets us, where he's shown himself clearly in Jesus and his execution. God has done something, and so the ball is firmly in your court now. So what move will you make? It seems to me there's three possible responses you can make. You may have come in today never having thought it was inappropriate to demand that God prove himself. It was just obvious to you that God should do that. I hope you're now willing to reconsider that. But you may still have lots of doubts and unknowns, even sceptical about this Jesus thing. Is it real? Was he real? Then the only reasonable thing, can I suggest, is that you explore it for yourself. Go and look. And we'd love to help you do that if you'd like us to. And we'll tell you how to do that in a minute. Come back next week. Ben is going to speak on the topic, uh, uh, which actually will explore Christ crucified in some depth. Come and, come and hear that and see God at work. Secondly, you may be somebody who already has Jesus as your joy and pride. His death for you is your confidence. The revolution's already happened. Then can I say, keep going. Exploring the depth of the wisdom and the power of God. Being humbly confident and confidently humble. But maybe you're somebody who's realised today that you need to start afresh with God. You know that in your own way you've been estranged from God and you now want to be forgiven for that. And you want to put God at the centre of your world. How do you do that? Well, the only way to do it actually is to not just change your mind but talk to God. And here's the sort of thing you might say. Just read it after me. Sorry, follow as I read it. Lord God, I want to apologise for the way I've often treated you. Please forgive me and save me. Thank you for Jesus who died for me. I want to live your way from now on. Please help me to do it. Pretty simple, isn't it? 
Fairly straightforward. If that is what you want to say to God, then I'm going to say it aloud and ask you just in the quietness of your own mind and heart to say it to God yourself. Let's all just close our eyes. But only say this if you want to. Lord God, I want to apologise for the way I've often treated you. Please forgive me and save me. Thank you for Jesus who died for me. I want to live your way from now on. Please help me to do it. Amen. If you've said that to God, he's heard you. He's forgiven you. You've started a new life. And again, we'd love to help you get on your feet.